Okay, folks, you know the drill. I'm traveling. So obviously, audio is going to be a little less than perfect on this uh, next interview. I was very fortunate to sit down with Sexual Yokai, who is a frequent collaborator of Toy Pizza and Knights of the Slice. Um, his work has made my ideas and my product better and better than I ever could on my own. So I'm always very appreciative of him lending his talents to our efforts. And uh, he's a pretty profound, pretty smart, and uh, pretty lovely guy. And uh, I don't think he's done any of other interviews. There's very little information about him out there in the world. And uh, I'm happy to bring you as an exclusive to Distazapod and our Patreon, my interview with Mr. Sexual himself. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, there are few people in the toy and art world that are more mysterious and hidden and secretive than the artist known as Sexual Yakoi. This may, did I say that right? Or is it Yak- Yakoi? Yokai. Yokai. Sexual Yokai. He, um, I, I'm staring at him right now, but I couldn't even describe him. He's basically a, a blurry, pixelated shape. What I assume to be a man. The voice seems deep enough. Um, but I think uh, I commend you, first of all, for having a very low footprint online. You know, it's all, it's all about the art. It's all about the process. People don't know who you are. They, don't, they may be surprised to learn that you have an accent. They, some people have said you might be a puppet of Russia. We don't know if that's true. It could be a sleeper agent. Um, so, I hope that would have more money if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, get that nice, get caked up by the KGB. Um, so I think we'll, we'll kick this off because I, I don't think, you haven't done any interviews that I've read or... No, I don't think so, no. Um, so I will start at the beginning in... Uh, in the womb. In the womb, yeah. What, what colors are you seeing? Um, I want to go to um, early inspirations mm. because I think we have a lot of the same ones. Mm. We've, we've certainly, when we're working in tandem and, you know, I sort of give you direction for a, a mm. piece of art that we'll use, uh, I've never had to explain a, a cultural touchstone I've put in front of you. Mm. It seems, you know, our synapses are pretty hardwired there. So I'll hand you the... Mike, and you can tell us a little bit about what your early influences are, and, and particularly the the sort of toy or Japanese influences that came into play. I'm assuming it's probably the same ones as me. Probably, I guess. Yeah, I guess, you know, when I was a kid, it was the age of Transformers, etc. And I think the th- the one that really got me was Action Force, you know, G.I. Joe, before before they became the kind of fully articulated ones when they were just kind of like Star Wars-style fixed-limb ones. I think that was... My parents bought me a big load of those for Christmas once, and I think that's what really started me on that train. And then I kept buying them as they became more in line with the American kind of versions. But I think... I mean... I. I, was, I wouldn't say I was into Transformers because I, I used to subscribe to the Transformers comic but my, my mother refused to buy me Transformers toys because for whatever reason she thought that they were a waste of money compared to any of the other plastic tat but I think Mask as well was the other one that 
I loved. My family wasn't particularly rich when I was a kid, but my parents, when I was a really young kid, just bought me a huge, I assume it was like second hand, but just like a huge, like, garbage bin full of Lego blocks. Like, literally, like, I don't know how many kilograms worth. So I would just make the toys that my parents wouldn't buy me or couldn't buy me out of Lego. So I made, like, Transformers out of Lego, and I made... Do you remember Supernaturals, the holograph oh, yeah. ones? I made those out of Lego by making the frame of the figure and then sandwiched between the sheets of Lego, putting in a piece of paper, which I drew on one side, the main figure, and then on the back, I drew the kind of monster version. So if you held, because it was a hole, if you held it up to the light, the back shone through, so it transformed like a hologram. It's incredible. So when I was about you know nine or stuff, I used to make stuff like that just because I didn't really have... I didn't really have any other toys to play with. I might have had a lot of action force and G.I. Joe type stuff, but so I think that was my kind of intro into just making stuff that I wanted to see myself rather than solely going by what was being produced by companies, I guess. That's really fascinating. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, one, I I see the supernaturals in your work to this day. There's a lot of cloaks, there's a lot of monster hands, a lot of daggers, a lot of like that that sort of mystic occult flavor that makes total sense. It wasn't even the cool not like armor ones that I liked. Yeah, so I had the little ones. Like, ones. ones. Those were the ones that I loved just because they were so like weird. Yeah. When I was a kid I was quite like fr- afraid of I remember, you know, recently Dark Crystal came out. Yeah. And it just reminded me when I first watched that I remember in, after watching it, I really need to go to the toilet. Yeah. You know, the, the toilet in my house was on the second floor. I lived in a like, three-floor house, but the toilet was on the second floor. I just remember sitting at the bottom of the stairs crying until my parents came to ask me what was wrong, saying that I just, because I needed the toilet so badly, but I was afraid there was going to be a Skeksis in the toilet. Like, that, I do not remember that scene from Dark Crystal. I know. It, it's something flash up. This is very interesting, though, and I, I just had this conversation with um, Aaron from Unbox. Mm. Uh, because I bought the Splatterhouse final figure. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like you, I was a very sensitive kid, and I was petrified of scary things. I, it, toy collectors kind of go one or two ways. They either they loved the monster aspect of things, like Michael Scottam's a good example, and they just go towards the, the kaiju and the monsters and the creatures, or they're kind of profoundly <laughs> impacted in the negative by things like Dark Crystal or... Splatter House or, you know, things like that. And I was definitely in the latter camp. I was a big scaredy cat and had to sleep with the light on, things like that. It was weird because, like, after that, I don't even know where the break point was, but after that, I started to just get more interested in that kind of world. And I remember... It's kind of bizarre to think about it now, but my parents bought me a massive, like, hardback book of all, like, ghost stories, like, you know, UFOs and mm-hmm. possible true-life ghost stories, real kind of, like, you know, his, now History Channel type stuff. Yeah. But, um, and I remember just being afraid to open that book, but still, like, looking at it every day. Yeah. Like, I think it started to become more about, you know the excitement of it rather than just being scared I, I don't remember when that change was but definitely and then I became like obsessed with horror films after that you know, it's yeah the um, the alien there was sort of like a satanic slash alien abduction panic mm-hmm. you know 80s and 90s yeah, 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 yeah. 
uh, pre-X-Files, I think X-Files was our sort of way of processing that and dealing with it. And kind of pre, it was like Unsolved Mysteries time. I don't know if you had that yeah, program yeah. over there. But um, I, I had, had access to similar books. Like there was a Time Life series, Mysteries of the Unexplained. And the alien stuff was really petrifying to me. And my greatest fear was being abducted by aliens. And then Fire in the Sky came oh, out. And Unsolved Mysteries was popular. And uh, it was, like, I remember having panic attacks as a little kid thinking that, uh, you know, I was going to be abducted. Like, it was a really profoundly deep-seated fear. I didn't see Fire in the Sky until much later, but I did I still haven't seen it. <laughs> like, when I was quite young. Yeah. And this... There's that you know, famous scene in Communion where Christopher Walken wakes up in the night and his house is all kind of lit up and there's like a grey alien that like lurks around the door frame. Like that. Now watching it, it, it it's, it's kind of cheesy, but right. I think still it's got that memory in my head of, you know, there, there could be another world out there. Yeah, the, the sort of just literally the mysteries of the unknown. It's I'm, very... I'm a massive sceptic. Like I don't, I don't believe in... I don't believe that there are UFOs. I don't believe in ghosts. But I just believe in the, the concept of those things. I don't know if you've you ever heard of Fortean Times. Yes, I absolutely. I subscribed to the Fortean Times for about five years when I was a teenager. When I was like about four, from about 14 till I guess I went to about university probably. But yeah, those things. It, it's kind of like a semi-scientific magazine. Or it used to be. Like, yeah. For those for those American listeners, 14 Times is sort of like Maxim meets X-Files. Yeah, I, I, that's how I would say it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of exploitative, but in the same, in this other side of it, there are a lot of, like, intelligent people writing for it. There were. This yeah. was in, like, you know, early kind of X-Files time, I guess, like, kind of mid-90s. But, yeah, that kind of thing. I would never believe any of these stories, but it's the same with, like, folklore. I right. love folklore, and I love... You know, god myths and those kind of things. Of course, I don't believe that you know a serpent ate the sun. Like, but right. the concept of that idea is what's attractive. Yeah, I think there is. Um, I mean, myths endure for a reason. Mm. There's some there. You know, you can kind of go down the Joseph Campbell route yeah. if you want to, but there is. There's. There's something coded in these things. Mm. You know, the same way we have DNA. Mm. You know, these myths yeah, yeah, yeah. persevere because there's. There is a truth to it, you know, mm. but I guess it's your perception what um, that truth is. But I, I see a lot of mythology in your work. And mm. for, for those who have maybe never owned an actual piece of yours, um, because they are relatively rare, I think, in the, in the grand scheme of things you can yeah. collect. You're, I don't put that much... I tend to just hoard stuff and actually <laughs> let anyone buy it. Yeah. But um, when you see your work in person, you realize that the most striking thing is one, it's not digital. This is a handmade piece. Yeah, I think this a lot is. Of people think it's like illustrator. <laughs> yeah. But you are, you're literally sitting down with an X Acto or other tools and meticulously cutting out these hyper complex motifs that really blend technology with mythology with you know you have a lot of rusty chains mixed with computer circuitry and it's um it's just such a dynamic thing and and 
What would further surprise people is that the color effects largely are as they appear in person. You're using, you know, you're putting underneath these sort of cutouts this really nice paper, which maybe you wouldn't have gone down that route if you hadn't had access to all these wonderful Japanese stationary places. You know, the craft world here is quite near to the artistic world, so they kind of cross over a lot of time. So there's so many places to buy those kind of supplies and just beautiful, unique papers and those kind of things. Yeah, so, yeah, I think you're right. It probably would have just stuck with black and white. Yeah. Otherwise. Or used, um, I don't know, blood sausage or whatever your, <laughs> whatever was available in the UK. But yeah, it's... Yeah, I don't even know, remember when I decided to start using colour because some days I, I kind of wish I never had because it's such a horrible process that I dread every time. Which is why a lot of my work takes months to do. The actual cutting of the piece doesn't take that long. Yeah. But the colour stuff does just because I hate doing it so much. So I kind of wish I hadn't done it yeah. sometimes. But. <laughs> um, and for those who, you know, there'll probably be a small portion of the audience that is learning about you for the first time. Could you run us through how a piece starts? Like, you have the evening off, a rare evening off. you got plenty of time. Uh, what sort of music do you put on, and then how do you approach doing one of these big pieces? Um, yeah, in terms of music, I don't know. I've got quite eclectic music taste, sort of, from, like, you know, electro-type stuff to, to disco to... Well, a lot of things. I just randomly, whatever mood fits the day, I guess. But uh, I listen to a lot of like podcasts and things while I work as well because just I'm a kind of obsessed with information, so sure. absorbing time to absorb information. But um, I, I'm kind of really bad about planning work, which is why I think a lot of my work probably anyone who follows me on Instagram sees pieces that are like work in progress and then never sees them again because mm-hmm. I just lose interest or it reach a point where I don't know where to go with it because I don't plan so much I mean I I guess the series that is the most the biggest through line is the kind of Imperial Boys pieces which are were originally a riff on Bikuri Man stickers Mm -hmm. which is why the name's quite similar but uh, they've kind of mutated into something a little bit different I think but with those I literally just take the piece of paper, draw a load of, with a compass and rulers and things, draw a load of geometric shapes on the back and then just start to pass out what those shapes could be. Usually in terms of what's in my brain at the time, which is why if you look at a lot of those pieces, you can kind of work out what I was watching at the time Mm. or like what I was, what book I was reading. But it all just comes from like the geometry. I don't, I have a kind of, image of what shapes they should be rather than what contents they should be so that's which is why a lot of them don't get finished is because when I start to add stuff in it throws the balance off so I don't like it anymore so I just stop because there's no way for me to go back in my type of art so it's just okay kiss that one goodbye and move on to the next one right um how how much of a deviation is there from the the sort of pencil outline on the black that you do to the actual cutting that's happening. Is it pretty faithful to that, or you just go where the art sort of takes you, where the notion takes you? I, I almost never, like, draw the entire thing. 
I draw like you know a couple of centimeters, and once I'm happy with that, I cut that, and then move on to another point of it and draw another couple of, cent of centimeters. Sometimes I do it really roughly, and sometimes I do it exact, depending on how complex it's going to be, because you know one mistake and you've just ruined it. So sometimes you have to be pretty exacting, but I don't remember the last time I drew out a piece entirely before I started cutting it. Maybe I never have, like, mm. I just do it as I, just kind of stream of conscious style, which is why a lot of my stuff is just like a giant mess a lot of the time, I think. <laughs> it's like, there's no overarching idea a lot of the time. Yeah. They're, um, I often think that your work is sort of like the closest approximation to a dream, you know, in that it's like a lot of disparate parts and sort of randomness that actually kind of pull together in some sort of cohesive thought even if it's like not entirely interpretable and I think that's why it's you know to me it's very captivating work because I I think once you figure out the idea of something it kind of loses some of the appeal for me anyway I, you know I think we're both kind of impatient uh, creative types and once something's fully understood, or once a toy line has been completely collected, it loses any allure whatsoever, you know? And I, I like that your work sort of, yeah, you know, maybe it's a mystery to you, and we're sort of in, in the same boat in some respects. Like, it's a mystery to all of us, you know? I'm just... I guess it's weird, like, I'm not sure in the kind of lowbrow art world, world but when I was in school I was interested to study art but then the more I got into that kind of study thing the more it's like yeah I really don't want to because I just hate pretension yeah I hate people who like feel the need to like explain everything they do in a real like high fluting way like why can it not just be you know I like the shape of this mm -hmm. you know and leave it at that you know so that's why I kind of moved away from art for quite a long time because it's just I don't want to build a narrative around things I'm interested in building a narrative in terms of a stupid like cod sci-fi story yeah. like some like ridiculous fantasy story but not in terms of like you know, this is what I'm trying to achieve on the world stage with this picture of a skull like just let it be a picture of a skull and yeah. like calm down like, yeah I think um, you know there is a there is a part of the charm is, is like not knowing things, you know, and I, I do agree, like, especially in the traditional art world, it's like, oh, this is this artist from this period. And they were thinking about this at the time of this artwork. And that's I, that's kind of why I don't really like to go to museums or, you know, unless it's something uh, special, because I don't I don't want to know. I think also like I think of. The Microman line. Um, I could become an expert in that if I put my nose to the grindstone and I sort of printed out every page of Micro Forever. Um, but I sort of like not knowing everything about that line and discovering things organically and not knowing... Like, I had to ask someone why Hoodman was smaller than all the other characters. And, you know, like... I, I would recommend people sort of 
you don't always want to know. And I get a lot of like narrative questions about Knights of the Slice a lot, or characters, and is this character really that character? And um, like when you were a kid playing with toys, I mean, I guess it's in a pre-internet age as well. Yeah. But like, you know, you had the tie-in TV cartoon, you had maybe the comic, but you didn't really. You had a little like, you know, for GI Joe, the little information or Transformers information card on the back, but you didn't really pay much attention to that. You were just you were you had to fill in the blanks with those things, and I think there's a bit too much. I guess it's people people like branding in a real kind of all-encompassing way now, right? Where everything has to be explained and everything has to be built up around some kind of. I guess it's the the whole Marvel system of like hundred percent, a massive narrative about everything, and people want to know the finest detail. But you know, when you were a kid, you didn't care about that stuff. You were just like, "This is cool," you know. You could play with a transformer. I'm sure everyone did play with transformers and. G.I. Joe you know until recently that wasn't a thing where they existed in the same universe but yeah I think I think um, you know you read that comic by the way the Tom I don't know Tom Scully yeah yes Uh, fantastic that's amazing just because that is 100% just kids playing with their toys yes that's why that works because it, it is completely insane like. yeah Tom Scully's uh, G.I. Joe versus Transformers very very much what we're talking about here and the sort of randomness of a it kid in the sandbox random, like, yeah. yeah it doesn't make any sense I, I think that what we're what we're dealing with culturally especially in pop culture is over commercialization over licensing over saturation mm. and part of licensing is having your style guide and adhering to your style guide and because of that we know every minor character in the background of solo a star wars story and we have almost nothing left to the imagination now a counterpoint to that i would say is like uh dark souls or um you know miyazaki's sort of from software's games where they don't spell out very much at all you discover the narrative as you pick up items and you get a little blurb and it's really left to the community to kind of pull all the threads together and I think that um, you know we're all sort of feeling superhero movie fatigue we're feeling Star Wars fatigue it's because you know we're we're being overfed foie gras (laughs) there's there's too much information there's too many Wikipedia entries about you know this cantina member in the back in Java's court, and um, you know what I have tried and strive to get back to is is sort of uh, mystery, you know, mm-hmm. much like your artwork is is sort of mysterious, much like you, mysterious. <laughs> so just the, yeah, the idea that like you know, I, I guess it is changing a little bit. That you know, two completely separate things can can exist together for no other reason than that I, I wanted to do it you know like there's nothing wrong with that like, yeah. nothing wrong with having to build a real convoluted story about things just just let it be whatever it wants to be you know yeah you know it's yeah and I, I would I would urge people to sort of uh, you know sit sit with not knowing yeah. these things about you know appreciate brands that don't I mean, not even brands. Just appreciate efforts, artistic efforts that don't spell it all out. Um, 
because that is sort of the counterpoint to where we are culturally. We know way too much of everything on demand whenever we want it. And the... If you feel as if things are a little less authentic, a little less riskier these days, a little boring, that we're just sort of pressing the food pellet button, the the antidote to that is sort of supporting artists and ideas and projects where that are one small and sort of usually have a sole creative person that's calling shots and also be okay with, you know, the mystery and then the not knowing of things. Yeah, I think, like you know, if you want to, if you want to get a kind of pure shot of that feeling, you know, just go to a natural history museum or a you know, museum of anthropology where you know there's there's items and figures and sculptures of like the craziest designs, crazier than anyone in any kind of toy company is making. And you know, people can speculate as to what you know, historians or anthropologists can speculate about what those mean, but nobody really knows. Right. And doesn't matter because it's just you know people like them because they're mysterious which is exactly what you're saying you know it's you can appreciate the artistry and what it could be it doesn't really matter what it is unless you're I guess you are a hardcore scientist but like yeah, yeah I don't know it's um, on the uh, sort of Tom Scully tip uh, are you familiar with uh, Copra Michael Fife's book I don't think so so I've been reading that, and I've sort of been waving the flag very hard for it. He's a contemporary of, I think they're friends. And, um, uh, so Copra started as a creative effort to do a 22-page comic every 30 days, mm-hmm. which is an insane sort of turnaround. So, uh, sorry, it's not Michael, it's Michelle. Uh, so Michelle would just in 30 days just bang out a single issue he had some like he had subscribers but it was sort of a pre-patreon sort of deal and so he didn't have time to do edits he didn't correct anything he just put it on the page and and did it he also used a lot of unlicensed characters like there's a Doctor Strange-esque character there's a Punisher type character um, but the energy is exactly the same as Tom Scully's work and I highly recommend these books and it gets much more cohesive and story-focused in the sort of later trades. But the, you know, again, we're, we're getting to that sort of nugget of an idea of, like, an automatic creative process that isn't fully understood. And I think that's where you get kind of enduring magical things from. It's like, um, you know, the, the comics from... Ben Mara, like, yeah. like yeah, yeah. I think I forget the name of it. There's an Instagram account. I think it's called like Power Comics, mm. but it's basically somebody who collects the kind of self-published '90s comics that were made by like you know 17-year-olds yeah. in the kind of comics boom of the '90s. Maybe they got a little bit of maybe minor distribution, but they're so completely bonkers and like the art is unrestrained. The story is completely unrestrained. Like there's so much more fun from yeah. just somebody pure, like you know dumping their brain on the page basically and not caring so much about you know, building up a license or those kind of things it's it is refreshing to see that kind of creativity yeah I think also you know I've noticed that sort of uh, 
Spawn and Todd, Todd McFarlane and Youngblood and Rob Liefeld, they're kind of coming into their second age. Yeah. And a lot of and, and Image Comics in general, and I think a lot of that is because those were really un, unrestricted efforts of a, a singular sort of creative vision. And we went through, you know, 10, 15 years where we were dogging all of those efforts, you know, for their anatomy or, you know, the stories not being very deep or the characters being ripoffs. But now we're sort of coming back around where we're like, you know what? Actually, it was entertaining. And that is the highest form of art if you can entertain somebody. I mean, like, I was never a massive kind of like, you know, Marvel or... I mean, I read a, I read a lot of, a bit of DC when I was a kid, but I didn't really read a lot of Marvel. But um, recently... I thought, oh, I'll check out what comics are like now in the kind of, you know, mainstream, like, titles. Just the art, I, I just can't, I can't get behind the really, like, overly digitally coloured with a yeah. load of, like, Photoshop effects and stuff. It's, I guess it's because I just missed the whole intervening years that built to that. But, like, yeah, just go back to, like, the 90s, like, a little bit kind of janky right. feel of things. It just feels a lot less processed and a lot more energetic, I guess. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that... Uh, I, I do think that comics as we know it, it may be coming to an end because, uh, you know, there are talks of DC shuttering titles and there's... I believe there have been very real efforts on Disney's part to shutter Marvel as a printing operation. And, and I understand that because the economics are not there. They, these... It's books. Things nowadays, you know, it's yeah. such a minor industry. It's it's a very expensive sort of way for them to put a couple ads, you know, into uh, pamphlets, mm. essentially. Uh, and I, you know, I think um, purists within these corporations will probably fight for it, but ultimately, I'm not sure that mm. they will win. I, I think that you know what we're looking at is much like the toy industry with, you know, they're really being like two or three big guys, no middle class whatsoever, and then just scrappy sort of independent stuff. I, I think that um, we're in for that with comics in a big way because now it's it's the mega corporations that own DC and Marvel. And, uh, you know, things don't typically last uh, more than a decade after an acquisition of, of that size. Yeah, I mean, it's rare for me to read comics now, but I just, I just then, like a lot of people who are getting older, I guess you just go back to stuff that you used to like more, you know. But going back and reading like V for Vendetta and things like that, and like I recently went back and read all the um, Alan Moore Swamp thing. Yeah, absolutely. I did. I, I mean, I made the same pilgrimage. The art's kind of a bit weird at times, yeah. and it's 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 got a really weird style, of like half realistic, half not, and. But it just works for what it, it... It's not like a template style that is the same as every other book or every other company's book. It's just... It was what it was at that time, and it's so much better for it. Like, like, I was just thinking, like, Swamp Thing is the best character that's got, like, the shittest end of the stick for its entire life, I yeah. think. It's so good, but, like, been so... Because, you know, recently they did a series, didn't they? Like a Swamp Thing TV series that got cancelled. Right, instantly. Before the first season even. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, they just don't know what to do with it. But, I don't know, yeah. I, people love the idea of superheroes now, but it's still such a really narrow band of superheroes, I think. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah, I mean, I could talk for 
ages about it. I could pontificate on superheroes for a while. Um, but I, it, Swamp Thing is definitely like a worthy... Go back and get those trades and see Alan Moore's run on it. And Tom Vike, I think, was the other guy. Um, really, really worthwhile and very much the antithesis of not only modern superheroes, but also what was happening with superheroes at the time. Yeah, you think about, you know, like you say, about the kind of image comic stuff that was around at that kind of time, and, you know, the crazy muscled steroid one million pouches attached to their legs type yeah. world. It's just so completely opposite to that. Right. So, yeah, it's... I wonder if that kind of thing still exists in any form within the kind of like Marvel and DC universe not that I've seen no I think it's all it's all independent people that are pushing forward these things Um, well that's a good place to put a pin in it Uh, thank you for your time and thank you guys for listening the only thing left to say is oh and check out uh, Sexual Yokai at Sexual Yokai on Instagram the only thing left to say is pizza out